You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, who's out on the robe, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how's it going? It's going well, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I uh, had a really nice uh, Thanksgiving holiday uh, last week. Hope you did as well. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Um, and uh, yeah, now now just getting a little bit more work in before our Christmas break, so always good. Yeah. Well, not a lot of news um, in the way of 340B updates, nothing new and noteworthy over the Thanksgiving holiday. Things have been relatively quiet, so I guess that's good for for most 340B covered entities. No news seems to be good news uh, lately. Um, Lots of chatter still ongoing from the the Genesis court ruling. There have been a number of other vendors out there that have put out some webinars, a lot of great um, articles, blogs. Um, kind of written summaries of uh, takes on the Genesis lawsuit. Anything that you've learned or any opinions that you have that you want to share about the uh, the court ruling on patient definition in the Genesis case? Gosh, no, just kind of, you know, we, we had our, um, you know, our podcast episode on it as well. Um, just, so, you know, in fact, I just presented today at an HFMA regional conference and, you know, I had some people come up. We we actually didn't have it as one of our topics. Uh, myself and uh, Kristen uh, Chupka from uh, Dartmouth Health both presented. And she did a really nice job talking about her compliance and 340 program. And we had talked initially and said, you know, we really aren't talking about Genesis, but uh, we did have some people in the audience come up, talk to us after about it. And, and so it is something that just is on everyone's mind because, you know, it's, I think people are looking at it as more more manufacturer restrictions occur or further restrictions, we should say. You know, Eli Lilly, of course, taking away ESP. Um, and then we had our 28th manufacturer get added in Sando. So we've got quite a bit of, um, you know, that continues to, I guess, decrease uh, savings within contract pharmacy. I think people are trying to figure out, well, how do we shore that up? Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, Greg, but we get, um, I get the updates from like Becker's and um, Modern Healthcare. And I constantly see health systems reporting quarterly losses in the millions of dollars. And so we're still seeing financial difficulty. In fact, I read one article about a large health system that uh, I think posted a 300 plus million dollar quarterly loss for Q3, which is massive. You think about that, it's like, wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot of millions. Yeah. Um, right. And that, that's not attributed all to manufacturer restrictions, but, but those could help, right. That could, you know, it's, it's almost like you have to kind of come up with multiple strategies to help offset some of those losses. Um, you know, there's, of course, they pointed to um, financial difficulty with staffing. We know that the nursing shortage and travel nursing costs, I mean, pharmacists and pharmacy tech costs has gone up, right. Uh, I'm sure there's other healthcare um, uh, professionals and and even frontline staff that also have increased wages. And so all this is impacting that. What was interesting is they pointed to, so staffing costs went up 8%, which is huge, right? Because that's one of the largest um, costs costs within a health system. The second was was a supply cost, and and that went up 8%. So also supply costs as a whole, what was interesting is pharmaceutical costs, they pointed to was 21% increase year over year. That is massive. And so- you know, I, so I think 340B has a lot to do with that if you're losing through them. Um, and again, I don't think that was contract pharmacy per se, but but losing contract pharmacy savings didn't help. But the fact we're seeing a 21% increase or they saw a 21% increase in, in costs in, in pharmaceuticals. And I should point out, that's not to say that the cost of any drug went up that much. It's just when you have newer drugs with higher costs, the total budget for pharmacy went up by 21%. Yeah. And it, that's sort of unsustainable. And so, you know, what can health systems do to kind of start lowering that to be more in line with 
inflation and the revenue increase. Because if your revenue is not pacing your costs, then that's where you end up with, you know, a 300 plus million dollar quarterly loss. I mean, that's projected, right? If you do an annualized, that's a billion dollar loss. And that's, you know, net, that's not revenue decrease or increase. I think they had increased revenue, just didn't keep pace with the expenses. So yeah. super scary. And so I think that's, that's what I'm kind of seeing for, as I talk to um, health systems and, and covered entities is they're just, they're just trying to figure out what can we do. And I think um, that that's probably the biggest thing that we're, that, that I keep talking to people about, especially around Genesis, like what, what can, can we use Genesis in some way, shape or form that's going to help? Um, and I think some of the articles are talking about that. And I think, I, I don't know your thoughts are, I still feel like we, we need HRSA to, to give us a response because I, I don't know where HRSA is going to go on this one, right? Is it going to just be primary care? Is it, are they going to expand it past primary care? Are they going to come up with a revised definition that's in line with the statute? I don't know. Um, so I'm curious on your thoughts of that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that I've been having conversations with. It's really important right now to wait and see how HRSA is going to respond. We haven't heard any response yet. And I think they have uh, is it 90 days from from the court ruling to file some type of uh, motion to appeal the decision? So more, more to play out from the court case. Um, but yeah, I, another thing that I, I've been re reminding folks is that we, we've kind of already seen what HRSA's response was to the lawsuit. So they were sued by Genesis back in 2018. Um, and, you know, around fiscal year 2019, we saw we've started to see since then a precipitous decline in the number of diversion findings. So HRSA has already relaxed their interpretation or at least their enforcement of um, their patient definition. Um, and I think that's evident by the fact that we're, we're running single digit rates of diversion findings now, you know, eight, nine, 10 percent over the last couple of fiscal years compared to pre-Genesis, where we were seeing about 50% of HRSA audits come back with some type of diversion finding. So I feel like HRSA's already made a change um, to the way that they're enforcing patient definition guidance, but um, got to presume that more is going to change in the future now that um, you know there's a, an adjudicated court case rolling in the Genesis case. Yeah, I, I would think so too. Um, and just to throw it out there, um, you know, as I think about well, where does this go, I, I think uh, Ted has talked about this, right? The He's got another article he published, uh, Ted Slavsky. Um, I guess I should tell him. He's like, who's Ted? Um, I think everyone knows Ted. Just make Everybody sure everyone knows, which Ted. knows who Ted is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But I just read his uh, article, and, and you know, he makes he makes a point that maybe it's an opportunity for a compromise. I, I think there's there's some probably some tr truth to that, right? Is Maybe, right? I don't know if manufacturers are, are willing to compromise on the contract pharmacy side or not, or... Um, but, you know, I, I guess if someone decides to do some legislation that talks about patient definition and contract pharmacy combined, maybe that's there's a compromise in the middle that says, OK, you know, maybe not a wide open patient definition, but also we get contract pharmacy back and yep. there's a compromise. And I think that's what he's at least advocating or, or thinking could could occur. And, and I think that would be nice. Right. So something that gets contract pharmacy back but at the same time. I don't think any of us feel a wide open definition in acute care setting makes a lot of sense. Right. If you see a patient in the ER for any reason, and all of a sudden all those prescriptions qualify for X number of months, it, it somehow doesn't pass the litmus test for me I, or the gut check. I, I feel like, you know, the care has to be related and then there has to be probably some time frame that makes sense where the hospital still has responsibility for care. Because yeah. I still think everything boils down to, do you have responsibility for care regarding that prescription? I think harder sell in acute care. I think it's an easier sell in primary care, right? Yeah. I think Genesis's point was mostly or primarily around primary care. And I think that that probably has the most weight uh, yeah. when you're when you're the primary care provider. I'm struggling with special when you're a specialist because you don't really cover all aspects of the patient care or in acute care setting where it's a limited time frame. Yeah, and um, maybe so, you know yeah. specialists that are that are 
serving as like a medical home. So you've seen, mm-hmm. you know, so, some MS providers and maybe GI providers, you know, where oncology. the patients, maybe oncology, yeah. where the patient's primary um, uh, disease state is Crohn's disease or MS. Um, so they go to the neurologist and the neurologist essentially serves as their medical home. And they, they also manage their, their, their primary care illnesses or other comorbidities that they yep. may have in addition to their, um, their primary indication. So yeah, yeah, I think maybe in that setting, you know, specialists may, may qualify for this expanded definition, but it, you, we talked about this when we kind of summarized our initial thoughts in Genesis in the acute care setting where you have primary care, maybe you can kind of apply the um, the decision from the Genesis court case to your definition of what's eligible in the primary care setting. Practically speaking, though, I've had some people ask, well, what does that mean? Is that uh, a separate way that you man- manually qualify prescriptions from a roster of patients that are seen in your primary care clinic? What are your thoughts around how you might um, execute some type of expanded patient definition for primary care clinics or internal medicine or family practice clinics that roll up under the hospital. Yeah. And we should point out, we're not advocating for that yet. We're just saying that if you're going to do it, you know, how would you operationalize that? And, um, and and if you are going to somehow use Genesis's uh, court court case decision, then, you know, we do think this is probably the the best area. If you're going to do it, probably the most applicable area would be primary care. And I agree, right. I don't, um, I I guess the TPAs are going to probably have to, you know, um, I guess some already are doing it, by the way, um, yep. starting to modify their qualification practices. But you're right, working with FQHCs, I mean, we have FQHCs that, um, you know, don't don't always have the best EHRs for sending data on visits and everything. So they'll use a patient list. And so I've got a few that use that where it's OK, here's our patients. They're updating their TPAs with the patient list and they're trying to find those prescriptions for their patient list and then doing a cross a secondary check against their providers. Right. So it's our patient and it's our provider who wrote it. So that, you know, pretty good. Um, chance that that's a qualified prescription because yeah. it'd be rare that that same provider would work externally and see the patient again in a primary care setting right that'd be odd um could happen but it's very infrequent so I, you know from doing the audits for that particular client or clients that are doing that they see it seems like a pretty good test so i think there might have to be a modification of qualifications or additional qualifications for that or it might fall into more like what some of the tpas have with a review queue or a pending claims queue where yeah. okay there's gonna be another pending claim um, criteria that says, if it's your patient, like if you say, okay, these are our patients, we've seen the patients and now there's prescriptions that don't match, we're going to dump them in this queue and call them potential, potential claims. And then you're gonna have to review it and say, yep, that's a primary care patient. I'm going to push all these through because whatever reason you feel that you have responsibility for care for that patient and all their prescriptions. So I think that's how that that's likely how it's going to be is one of those two options. TPAs step up to the plate and modify their qualification, or you get it in a pending file and you have to manually go qualify them. Yeah, that makes sense. But again, not not something that can be done without some resources. So you need to have yeah. the bandwidth to be able to do that. So it just adds another layer of of work into uh, optimizing your program. So um, right, because we don't send patients today typically, right? Like I said that yeah. one couple of FQHCs I know do, but generally I don't know any hospital sending a patient. That's uncommon. Yeah, 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 very uncommon. So that would be a change in practice. Um, but yeah, so doable, but yeah, not without some modifications, and then. We'd recommend, of course, if you are going to do it, that you do have some extra Q&A on your monthly um, audits to target some of those just to make sure that, okay, are we seeing what we need to see in the medical record that we're maintaining responsibly for care? Um, almost like a referral capture is the way I like to do it, but you know, you don't formally need a referral. You just need to show that you're responsible for care in some way, shape, or form. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about the Genesis case more. Um, you know, we're coming to the end of the year. We've got... Uh, a um an end of year kind of review um yep. that we're going to do for our last episode of 2023 so i'm sure genesis will probably be close to the top I think that'll make the top that 10 we uh <laughs> we, we find to be important developments from 
from the last year. Um, while, while I have you, uh, any additional feedback or chatter regarding the HRSA child site notice that was issued at the end of October? We're kind of in that transition period now. Covered entities need to submit letters to HRSA if they're using 340B drugs in unregistered clinics that are going to they're going to appear on the next filed cost report. No changes or, or updates that you've heard on that? No, but it's a good reminder for everyone, right? Because um, at least from our math, the 90 days from October 27th should be around January 25th. But so again, I just spoke at this HMA conference, lots of compliance leadership and finance. And so I try not to get too deep into 340B vernacular because um, then people just glaze over. Um, everyone knows how, what that's like. When If you're not talking to 340B people and you start getting deep on 340B, people just start taking naps. And we had the pre-lunch session, so that was rough. Chris yeah. and I were trying to keep everyone awake. Um, but one, the one take home I had from it, I saw everyone perk up was if, if you did utilize it, just remember, you need to submit that information to HRSA to be grandfathered in. And so you have to January 25th, I recommend you do it in December. So it's, it's anyone with a, just a calendar, your, um, MCR, right? So that means if you have a new location that's was put into place and you're doing 340 view as of January 1st, up until October 26th, you have to file the grandfathering. Otherwise, come January 25th, in theory, you need to stop doing 340B at the location. So get your grandfathering information in that came out with the HRSA uh, letter, um, yeah. how you, what information you need to provide to them. Basically, you just need to confirm what the cost center is, what line on the cost report that it will have expenses and charges, and when that cost report expects to be filed. So we always recommend- I don't even think you need to provide that level of detail. It's just the name of the cost center oh, yeah? or the name of the department, the date that it's going to be on the cost report. So say February, yeah. 2024, and then the date that you're yeah. going to register on OPACE, which would be April for that example. That's so right. it's really That's three, right. three limited pieces of information for each of the departments that you're doing it. But yeah, you're right. If you don't get that email into HRSA by January 25th, then you could potentially be, fall out of compliance if you're audited after that point and still using yes. 340B drugs in those unregistered locations. Right. And and that's, I mean, you know, you're talking about potentially, right? So if it's offsite location and your calendar year, you'd have to turn off on January 25th and you won't really be able to turn it back on to October 1st because you won't be able to register because you're going to file in May, register in July, and then October 1st would be your start date. So you essentially lose like nine months and five days of coverage if you don't um, figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, the transition plan, it's a 90 day transition plan to get everybody um, kind of right-sized with regard to OPACE registration, or at least communicating to HRSA. Um, but after that, new departments that are opened up now moving forward um, that are not on the cause report and unregistered, you know, HRSA could take issue with that and, and issue either uh, OPA database findings or um, uh, diversion findings if they're not on the cost report. So that creates, a, we've talked about this, a, a big headache when it comes to one, operationalizing 340B, buying in those new departments and budgeting for the savings that you expect to see because you're going to see a lag of anywhere from nine to 22 months, depending on the sequencing of opening the departments and all those other administrative tasks that need to be completed. So I hope, you know, and we have the lawsuits and I'm sure I have no idea how long those lawsuits are going to take. Um, I'm hoping that they bear some fruit because yeah, this whole lag time from nine to yeah, 21, 22 months, brutal. I just don't think it's uh, good good for 340B programs and especially compliance with NPIs being used for billing for duplicate discount and all you know everything we talked about previously. So I'm hoping that um, gets HRSA to change their practice, but that's a wait and see if, if that'll resolve anything or not. All right, good catching up with you, Rob. I know you got to hit the booth up here in a little bit. Um, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we have Kat Erickson from the Spendend Pharmacy team. We're going to talk a little bit about self auditing and staff augmentation support that we provide. Sounds awesome. Thanks, Greg. See you, Rob. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendvent Pharmacy. 
Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBend Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendbend.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, Rob and I are here with Kat Erickson from the SpendBend team. Hey, Kat, thanks for joining the podcast this week. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure, folks that have uh, been following us and have listened to some of our webinars have seen you before. But why don't you just provide everyone with a little bit of background into your role at SpendMan, what you did before you joined us, and what you're here to talk about today? Sure. So I came to SpendMan in November of 2020, um, where I started auditing. Um, conducting those HRSA-like audits, and then in May of 23, I transitioned over to pharmacy services. Uh, where I'm the coordinator and I help oversee our, our staff augmentation service. Uh, before that, I was at a pretty complicated disproportionate share hospital in the state of California, uh, where I oversaw a pretty large and complicated 340B program um, prior to that. So I'm excited to, to be here and to talk about you know, what our staff augmentation services have to offer our 340B covered entities. Thanks, Kat. Yeah, Kat is our resident uh, California expert. We have questions about what's going on with regard to healthcare in the state of California. We always go right to right to Kat. So, in addition to all her 340B experience and expertise, she's she's our California expert, and she's pretty dang good on that Excel spreadsheet too. Yeah, lots of Excel wiz wizardry <laughs> or sorcery. I can't remember what we uh, landed on as far as describing her <laughs> skills. Sorcerer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so today we're going to talk a little bit about self-auditing and kind of managing compliance aspects of 340B program and, and why you might, as a covered entity, need to seek some support. And Rob, you know, I, I don't, I guess maybe the, I don't think of staff augmentation services that we're offering today as kind of like a legacy type of service. What's the history of SpendMen getting into the business of kind of working with 340B teams to help augment um, staff-related activities? No, that's a great question, Greg, because you're right. It wasn't, right? We start, We did our first annual independent mock audit back in you know, May of 2013, and it really wasn't until 2021 that we developed staff augmentation, and it was in part over the years what we realized was some of our clients that we worked with you know, for year after year we would do the annual mock audit and then we'd come back the next year and they just really hadn't had the time or resources to, to fix all the issues we identified or some of the issues we identified. And we said, oh, okay, this wasn't fixed from last year. And, and talking with the clients, it was, you know, it's just resources. They're focused on just maintaining their program. And it was hard to get to all these other things that we recommended. And, and we realized some of it is just hard to find the right staff, especially when you're requiring onsite or, you know, versus remote and all those things. And, and, um, and what happened was, right, if everyone remembers in 2020, Turnkey Pharmacy Solutions joined Spendman. We got acquired by Spendman. It just really was a time where I, you know, I was doing too much, didn't have the time to expand. And we always wanted to do a staff augmentation-like service among with, along with some other services we wanted to start to help covered entities. We just didn't have the bandwidth. So in 2020, in August of 2020, when we joined Spendman, that really let us start offloading things by the end of the year where I wasn't the CFO, the CEO, the CFO, the CIO, and you know, doing everything else. And so in 2021, I, it, we had a little bit of bandwidth. I, we helped create staff augmentation. 
really worked with a couple of clients that really needed it. Um, I was asking for it. And, you know, at the time I was thinking, do we outsource this? Do we find somebody else? And finally I said, let's, let's hire somebody and do it. So we started in 2021 and, um, and lo and behold, it was a need in the marketplace. And now we have, I'm not sure even how many cat, do you, do you have a rough count on how many we have today? Clients? Clients? Um, or covered entities. Yeah. It, it's, Ever changing. Uh, I think we're <laughs> currently at like fourteen or fifteen right now. Okay, so fourteen, fifteen different covered entities that just, just you know, I mean, it just makes sense, and probably not including a couple of legacy ones that we had, some FQHCs that we support that Cam supports as well. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So probably in the sixteen, seventeen range. When probably. Because because we had been doing a little bit before, just clients had asked, and so we had you know one of our auditors doing it, but it really wasn't until twenty one we said, you know, we need a separate team. We want we want uh, to a certain degree. Whoever's the does the annual audit to be right. That's the annual mock audit. We want a little bit of separate eyes on the program, aside from some legacy clients where it just made sense to continue to use that auditor. Where we we now have a separate team that uh, Cat oversees or helps oversee that uh, focuses on um, staff augmentation. So their annual auditing team can still have that separate set of eyes as they look at the program. So two different teams that um, that conduct those those uh, um, annual independent audits versus the monthly staff augmentation support. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I guess the, the staff augmentation service or the folks that are supporting staff aug, um, support, the, I mean, they're really kind of serving as, uh, the, you know, proxy internal auditors, right? Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's, we almost think of them as an extension of your 340B program or a covered entities 340B program, because they really are performing that monthly self audit function that HRSA looks for, especially if you're, you know, doing contract pharmacy, when you get your HRSA audit, they'll ask, okay, what are you doing for your self audits? Yeah, you're typically monthly. Um, and to be fair, during the mega reg period, right, the 340B omnibus guidance back in 2016, if I have that right. Um, um, heck, even before, I think it actually was 2013. Um, so I don't have that right. <laughs> I need a fact checker. Um, I think it was 2015. I think it was 2015? Initially, initially released in 2015. Yeah. 2015. Okay. I was yeah. trying to remember when was that? Um, but that omnibus guidance uh, really, really, I talked about minimum Quarterly, but in general, I think most people do monthly, and that's our recommendation. Because if you only check things quarterly, things could have you know the wheels could have came off the bus for three months. That's a little bit more fixing. Um, so we like monthly self auditing. So we recommend that most of our covered entity clients are doing monthly self auditing. And um, yeah, I, I think that's the key uh, between the two, really. Yeah, as you m- m- mentioned, um, you know, the mega regs, and when we look at HRSA audit standards today, there really isn't any defined interval or period of time uh, that covered entities need to demonstrate that they're performing internal auditing. Um, Kind of share a little bit of anecdotes from the HRSA audit experience. You know, the internal auditing is reflected in the DRL, so the HRSA HRSA data request list. Um, First section, which we've talked about on the podcast before, outlines different provisions that need to be accounted for in your policies and procedures. And there are references to the need to complete internal compliance monitoring um, how, Kat, Rob, for, for those, for either of you that have been through a HRSA audit lately, how are HRSA auditors asking covered entities to demonstrate that those internal audits are being performed? Kat, uh, do you want to grab that one? Because interesting enough, Kat yeah. and I were just on a HRSA audit. <laughs> yeah. The board client, so. So they're going to, the, the HRSA audits that I have seen, um, is they look at it from a, a multi like prong approach. One is they're going to look at the templates that the covered entity is required to upload as part of the data request list. And of course, that's a blank template. Um, so it's not going to have any data in it. However, it's going to have the headers at the top to, sh- to show or to demonstrate what parameters the covered entity is auditing. 
two is they're going to ask the covered entity, they're going to ask representatives of that covered entity to speak to those templates and speak to the kind of auditing that they're doing. How many samples are you doing? Are you doing targets or randomized sampling? Um, are you looking, how are you preventing duplicate discount, diversion, GPO prohibition, et cetera? And the third prong that I'm seeing is they'll ask you, the auditor will ask the covered entity to go into their their audit folder. They don't want you to, to open up any files, but they are checking to see if those files are being saved on a regular basis. They aren't, they weren't all saved on the same day. Um, so they're going to ask you to, to really show and demonstrate that you, the covered entity, uh, are completing those self audits. Yeah, so yeah, I agree. From at least from my exper experience as well, it's somewhat of a cursory review. It's tell mm -hmm. us what you do in terms of your internal audit. It's show us kind of what that template, what a blank template looks like for the different data elements that you gather for samples or other elements of the program that you're looking at. And then show us essentially a snapshot of the self-audits that you've performed during the audit period. So whether it's, you know, a paper log of uh, audits or most commonly it's, you know, files, Excel files that are maybe shared on a, saved on a, on a share file or some type of network drive, pulling up the network drive that shows the different files for January, 2023, February, 2023. Again, not opening those up to demonstrate or display results, but just kind of showing proof that the covered entity has been performing um, audits according to their, their policies and procedures. Rob, pretty consistent with what you've had HRSA ask for as well? Yes, actually very, very similar. Um, very interesting. And, and just to be fair, they they don't really ever ask for our um, annual mock audit data either. They just need an attestation to a certain degree of the front cover pages of ours to make sure we did it. And then you're right on those, just like Kat said, it seems like they just want to some way at least show or prove that you've done them. Not only kind of what your headers are and what you're looking for, but also like something that signs off, okay, we did X number of samples here or someone initials and puts a date on when they completed it. Um, it's kind of what our last auditor was looking for. It's just, you know, some type of proof that you're actually doing them yeah. without actually looking at the data, which is really nice that they're not trying to get into, okay, well, show me your results and, you know, somehow using that against you. And they're really good about that, if, I feel like. Yeah, so the 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 degree of intensity to which HRSA is looking at self-auditing practices is, is relatively low, but I, I, I don't think that... Uh, I mean, it shouldn't underscore the the maybe the interest or the the need to avoid doing them or putting off internal. It's really important. The internal auditing that you're doing, self auditing, is really uh, a, a key mechanism to understand where your compliance gaps are. In addition to you know annual external audits, you know you want to be doing regular internal auditing to identify where you maybe have some gaps in your charge capture and your accumulations or in your Medicaid billing. Lots of different things to look at. Where do we see covered entities struggling in terms of executing self-auditing strategies? What are the obstacles or the headwinds that that we're going to be hearing from clients that say, look, I just, I can't get to my self-audits or I can't pull through all of the action items from my last year's um, annual audit. What are the reasons why covered entities are struggling to implement these types of uh, procedures? So what I'm seeing is it's it's sort of like a paradigm. So covered entities are, are, are in one of two buckets. Bucket one is we don't know where to start. We don't know what components to audit for. Um, we're really trying to wrap our heads around our current program. And then I see covered entities who have figured out the self-auditing components, who have put together a process. But the problem is, is the staff that is doing those, those self-audits and taking the time to do those self-audits 
don't have the resources or the time to then delve into the compliance risks that they identify during those audits. So it's kind of a, it's kind of again like a two pronged world because you know you do those self audits to help identify compliance issues, but once you've identified them, you need to figure out you need to conduct a root cause analysis. You know, determine if you need to do any kind of corrective action plan. You know, look and see if you need to. You know, because 340B it takes a village with 340B. It really does. So, you know, it could be something that is IT generated. Or it could be something that is outside of pharmacy that you may not necessarily have, you know, a lot of control over, like billing or like provider documentation. So it really comes down to covered entities who just don't know where to start, or covered entities who have started but don't know how to self-correct. Yeah, Rob, interested in your thoughts. Guess from from like pharmacy leadership perspective, I imagine there might be some budgetary constraints too that that interfere with the covered entity to. Uh, be able to build out uh, an internal auditing team. What, what are your thoughts around the the you know the the human resource component of putting this together and the deficits that you might experience? Yeah, and that, that that's actually a good point too. I, I think Kat's right on, on what she mentioned, but uh, also from even the sites that know what they need to do have the experience. It's sometimes you know, especially right now, yeah. where we have a lot of um, hospitals and FQHCs, especially with the manufacturer restrictions really struggling financially. And it's not just the manufacturer restrictions. I think reimbursements are down, costs are up. You can think about nursing costs and travel nursing, significant increase in just staffing costs and cost of goods with inflation and and the health system seem to be struggling financially. And so when that occurs, and I think, you know, all three of us work for hospitals and 340B hospitals and health systems, what you tend to see sometimes is a decrease in approvals of FTEs, especially new FTEs, right? There's a little bit of a kind of restriction on rehiring. Sometimes there's some attrition. They're trying to save some expense on um, utilize the staff you have, which is really, really hard because uh, like Kat mentioned, some of this is time consuming, especially when you have issues. I remember sometimes you, I think Kat mentioned it, when you have an issue, everything goes fine if all the samples pass, yeah. right? It's when the samples don't pass and you're down a rabbit hole trying to diagnose and play see, you know, investigative de- de- um, uh, detection and, and trying to really figure out what occurred. That can take hours for one sample, just trying to figure out what happened, how do we fix it? And I think that's where the issue comes in. And when you're short on staff and don't have resources, it's a bigger problem. I know when clients ask, we do a gap analysis of their FTEs. We look at all our other clients that are similar size and we try and say, okay, and, and of course, all of the studies that have been done out there or the things, the um, what are those things called, Greg? The um, surveys that yeah. I think uh, we saw 340B Health and um, ASHP do as well as um, Apexis do. Uh, they complete those surveys and we try and look at them and say, okay, well, how do these, our hospital clients compare to those? And are they even close? And sometimes they're not, right? We'll see a big dish hospital with one FTE and you're like, I'm not even sure how you're functioning with one FTE for such a large dish hospital. I mean, managing your accumulator alone would eat up that full-time FTE, let alone retail and contract pharmacy and clean sites and, and just doing your samples on a monthly basis for all of your universes. So it gets really, really hard when you're short on FTEs and just trying to do too much it feels like all they can really do is just maintain their their TPA settings and and manage their crosswalks and try and work with their buyers to not you know get any um, purchasing uh, decisions or processes wrong and they just don't have time to do those monthly audits and and improve so really really hard when you're not staffed appropriately. Yeah, so so you you're maybe not staffed because there's no room in the budget for bringing on FTEs or you're in a position where you say, look, I can get all the FTEs that you tell me I need approved, but I just don't have the people with the right experience to fill those holes. You know, when does it make sense for a covered entity to begin looking outside of their internal organization to maybe consider outsourcing some of the internal auditing work? What are, R- Rob, I guess start with you. What where what are the the 
the waypoints through the thought process that that folks should be thinking about when they're determining whether or not outsourcing is the right strategy? So I, I think those last two, the one, one last two you talked about, I mean, one is if you don't have the uh, approval, right? Sometimes you can get the financial budget approval for a partial, you know, or, you know, and where we're not, you know, lines we're not charging for a full FTE. So you might be able to get that approved. But secondarily, when you can't find the right staff, like you're looking at your team is like, we don't have anybody. We've posted a position. There's nobody here. Um, you know, I, I do recommend if you can go remote, that can help. I, I know it's harder when you don't have someone in your geographical area and some hospitals won't hire out of state, right? So there's some issues there. But the second one is if you don't need a full-time FTE, it's sometimes hard to hire a partial FTE or even a part-time FTE where it might make more sense to say, okay, we really only need support for knocking out a retail and contract pharmacy samples every month. That's just what we can't get to. If we can offload that, then we might be able to keep everything else in, in play and in check. And then you can just outsource those couple functions, which may be, you know, what would have been a 0 0.3, 0 0.4 FTE, 0.5, depending how many you have, much you have. And that might be more palatable where you can just outsource it. You don't have to worry about employee benefits or trying to find someone who wants to work part-time or split role with, you know, split a role with other job duties of farms you might have. And so I think in those situations, that's ideal to outsource until you need a full FTE and can find one. You can utilize a service like a staff augmentation that we have that, to, to be able to shore up and, and cover that gap um, while you're trying to figure out exactly what you need and, and, and trying to find that right person. Yeah. What's the service look like? So just on average, you know, from kind of start to finish, what, what's a staff augmentation service offered by Spendman um, look and feel like at the provider side? So I would say that it is tailored to your covered entity. Um, as Heidi Larson, one of our fellow auditors always likes to say, if you've seen one 340B program, you've seen one 340B program. Um, we do focus on targeted and randomized sampling. We also focus on what I like to call maintenance tasks, which are um, diversion, duplicate discount, and GPO prohibition risk um, parameters that will dig into your data and look at those areas that maybe a sample won't be able to find. Um, so for example, if you are subject to that GPO prohibition, and you consider IV solutions a non-covered outpatient drug because your materials management department orders it, super compliant, no big deal. We probably shouldn't see that in your data. But if we look at maybe your pharmacy 340B drug spend and we see, I don't know, maybe some mini bags that were purchased on shortage by your pharmacy buyer, we've got some risk there. So we're looking at those other additional parameters. Um, in terms of what we provide to the client, we're going to send you a monthly report that has that risk identified and laid out for you, as well as, you know, we set up phone calls, monthly phone calls to, over, to go over with the client the risk that we've identified, potential corrective actions that they can consider, um, as well as, you know, we can come up with additional phone calls, compliance calls, where maybe I'll get on the phone with folks and make sure that we can walk through the different paths forward with 340B in terms of compliance. So there's always a path forward with compliance. We can always move forward. We can fix, you know, whatever we find. There's always a way forward. It may be painful, um, but there is there is always a way forward. And so that's kind of uh, one of the areas that we focus on is we try to do those audits for you. We target for you, try to identify that risk, and then we give you a, a monthly report to, to help partner with you so that, that you can move forward. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think Greg's on mute. I was on mute. Can you believe that? Aiden's <laughs> going to have to, she's not even going to edit that out. No, don't edit out. it, Aiden. Don't yeah. edit it. Yeah. I made that mistake a bunch of episodes ago. Greg's never made that mistake. Doing this a year. I can't believe I left my <laughs> button on mute. 
So I was I was gonna say I, I appreciate that that summary, Cat. One thing I wanted to ask though is what about um staff training or mm-hmm. onboarding? You know, maybe a, yeah. a pharmacy manager or a 340B program director is like, look, I need external support now to get my feet underneath me, but I have plans to bring folks on board to do this internally. Can can uh, a client or a covered entity that you're working with incorporate some staff training or some recruitment um, resources to help uh, get, get the right people situated in a, a more permanent role? Oh, for sure. Um, we have offboarded and trained about 15 clients this year in terms of handing their program back. Um, Fantastic. You know, when we're talking about FTE and FTE requirements, you know, one consideration is if you have just one FTE dedicated to 340B, maybe you consider quarterly audits with us so that we can gain access to your, your EHR and your third-party administrator. We can help provide some quarterly audits and help do some additional training. Um, but if anything happens, you know, if you have a your analyst goes on maternity leave, for example, we can take your program over and and continue those self audits. And when they come back, we'll just hand it right back over to you. So we want to do what's right for the client. And so we have long term options, we have short term options, um, and whatever whatever we need to do to help support your program, we will do. Excellent. I guess if somebody's listening and they are interested in talking more or having a one-on-one conversation about what their needs might be and how we might be able to help them, Rob, what's the best way for folks to reach out? You know, reaching out to our, especially if if you're a current client, reaching out to either Chelsea Reeve or uh, Jeff Sauer, our pharmacy client managers. They, they, they're they the ones that, that help set up your annual independent audits. Um, you should have their emails. If you work directly with them, they can um, work with Kat and Riley to get some pricing um, for you based on your specific needs. I think that's an easy way to do it. Um, of course, you, you can put me on the spot. I'll tell you, what is our contact? I think it's contact, right? Contact at spendman.com will always um, get you to our, our contact email. I'm just trying to make sure that's correct. Um, but uh, but definitely reach out to Chelsea or Jeff. Um, if you're new, then yeah, just reach out to um, our main sales line. Um, now I got to go look it up. So I don't I always tell people just email the podcast. So the podcast email everybody knows 340B unscripted at spendmen.com. And we can certainly route your uh your questions to the to the right folks. You you mentioned pricing, Rob. Just yeah, that's always a, a question that's in the back of minds of the pharmacy leaders. What's the pricing look like generally for staff hog services? Yeah, so we, we just charge a flat fee, right? So we we kind of scope it out and say how many samples do you want us to do? Um, you know, on the low end, I think what Kat, we're talking about 1250 a month or something like that to make sure we get some your samples done. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, just depending on how many samples, how many universes you want, we kind of build it up from there. But we try and keep it reasonable. At the same time, we do have to cover costs for our staff. We are hiring experienced 340B analysts um, that uh, are going to get in there and, and find out your issues and everything else. And so we, we definitely want to do that. Oh, I looked it up. I think contact might work, but we also have sales at spendmen.com if you just want to reach out. But I, I like, Greg, your point, 340, 340B unscripted at spendmen.com. Um, that way, we you know, we it'll route to uh, Greg and I, and then Greg and I can get it to the right um, team members um, if you're interested in learning more about staff augmentation and getting a quote. Well, Kat, it was great having you on the podcast. We're definitely going to have to have you back again. Especially if something happens in the, in the news in California, we're going to need to bring you bring in here and, and have you give us the scoop. Indeed. So far, it's been quiet, but we shall see. Yeah, the new year's coming, so. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and well, yeah, you know, your governor, I think he's running. For, is he running for president or not running for president since Biden's running? Um, What's the deal? He's probably going to run in 28 
in 2028 for sure. Okay. Yeah. He was just reelected governor. So. Well, you know, I think the status quo is if you're the incumbent for your party's running, you don't, you don't run against them. And I know they have some that are, but it feels like. Um, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I think the last time there was a potential challenger, that's why um, Lyndon Baines Johnson didn't seek reelection in 68. Why oh, you just went way back? Wow, Kat, you're not that old. Don't, I just want everyone to know that Cat's not that old. She, I don't think she was <laughs> born. In, she was not born in '68. She's just a history buff. Yeah, She's a po- 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 politics poli, buff. Poli, poli sci major, right? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. So once we get some traction going on in uh, Washington on legislation, Cat, you have to come back and give us your thoughts on on where things might go legislatively. Oh, for sure. Happy to. We- little quiet now they've finally figured out house leadership so maybe things will pick up after the first of the year i don't know though we shall see we shall see i'm interested though for the winter conference that's coming up to see if persa has a response to uh, the genesis case <laughs> we we all are waiting for that response yeah, for everybody sure. is yeah <laughs> i wonder that'd be good timing i mean it seems like that'd be long enough right I mean, we're talking a couple more months that put it somewhere near three months uh, that might be too soon for them to get other ducks in a row, but yeah, pigeons, as you will. Page definition is going to be a hot topic at the Winter Coalition. So, mm-hmm. indeed, uh, looking forward to hearing what everybody has to say at the uh, the next conference. Rob, you've got a conference coming up. You're going to be at AS- ASHP Mid Year um, this week, I guess. So we're we're recording this uh, November 27th, but you should be listening to this on December 4th, I think. So you're well, behind this week, right? We're doing November 27th in the evening because we all had a lot going on today. And we did promise Kat she'd get out because she's got some yoga she's got to get to. Yeah. Um, just throwing that out there. Um, but yeah, so I actually have two conferences this week. Um, I'm actually, I, I get to go um, do lunch um, with some of one of our clients um, up in Seattle. There's a um, kind of big luncheon that's going on and that we uh, were able to do that. And, and we having lunch with some of our clients up there, which would be really fun, kind of a fundraiser type things. But then the rest of the week, I'm flying up to Boston on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So if anyone's up going to the HFMA um, slash um, uh, NEH um, conference up in uh, Groton, Connecticut, flying into Boston, driving down there, I'll be doing a 340B presentation for that HFMA regional um, conference. So that'll be fun. I, we got some clients up there and just uh, we'll be doing a little table, just me, just a little old me. I'll have some Utah truffles, though. Um, I don't know why I'm saying this on this because this podcast will drop on Monday and it would happen um, Thursday prior. So totally pointless. But hopefully I saw you there and you got some truffles. The following week we're at ASHP, so that's next week. So the Monday this drops, that's when ASHP starts for us. So I guess it starts on Sunday, but um, we'll be there. We have a booth. Come find us. Um, I probably should know the booth number. 15,000, uh, I think. Was 15, it 1,500? 1,500. Yeah, 1,500, maybe a third zero on there. I can't remember. <laughs> All right, 15,000 or 1,500, come find us. Um, we'll, I'll, I'll be there. We'll have a, some of our other um, team members there. Curtis will be there uh, with Trula, Jake, um, uh, Reagan. Um, I think we've got quite a people coming, actually. Oh, uh, um, uh, Janae will be there uh, for Trula Analytics. Uh, she, she's a new member of our team. So, yeah, come come stop by, say hi. Again, I'll have some Utah troubles there as well, um, along with some other swag and fun stuff. So, yeah, please. please I just looked at Aiden's that. notes. It is booth 1500. You were right. Okay. I was only off by factor of 10 so yeah you know i, I think people would get the realize there's no fifteen thousand, greg um <laughs> and then i think we've got a webinar coming up too tuesday december 12th uh page smith from our team and jennifer hagan they're doing a ce-based webinar so it's uh, i think the title is stay audit ready they're going to be looking at the 2024 data request list so 
Um, uh, keep an eye out for invitations uh, in your email or on social media to register for that CE webinar, December 12th. And, and should point, yeah, so so definitely some nice HRSA audit updates. We've been through, gosh, at least four HRSA audits since um, fiscal year 2024 started for HRSA. Probably more than that. I am just can't keep track anymore. It's been a crazy three or four weeks. And uh, so that, that update would be really good if you're interested in kind of what the HRSA DRL updates are, as well as um, some things we're seeing on those audits. And and, and Greg mentioned it's CE-based for both pharmacists and pharmacy technicians. So if you um, need to maintain your license and could use some live CE, um, doesn't cost anything. We cover the cost for that. Um, you just have to join the the um, webinar. If you don't have a link, again, reach out to 340BEnscripted at spendmen.com and we'll, we'll get a link to you. All right. Cat, Rob, it was a pleasure talking to both of you. Thanks uh, again for all your insight. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.